0: My guest today is Kevin Kelly. Kevin's books include Out of Control, The New Biology of Machines, Social Systems, and the Economic World, and New Rules for the New Economy, Ten Radical Strategies for a Connected World. He was the executive editor of Wired Magazine from its first issue in 1993 through 1999. and He's on the board of the Long Now Foundation and chairman of the board of the All Species Foundation. Kevin, welcome to EconTalk.
1: I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Your book, Out of Control, is one of my favorites. It's about what is sometimes called emergence or complexity or self-organizing behavior or the economy as ecosystem, a subject that's near and dear to my heart and mind. And in the beginning of the book, you write, the realm of the born, all that is nature, and the realm of the made, all that is humanly constructed, are becoming one. Machines are becoming biological, and the biological is becoming engineered. Now, you published those words in 1994, which is about an eternity ago. Is that trend still happening? What's changed since then? What's stayed the same?
1: I would say the trend is definitely still happening, if not accelerating. The primary thing that has changed is that that insight has become conventional, almost cliched. Um, At the time, when I was first reporting this in the late 80s. Um, It was still a metamorph, kind of a metamorph uh, metaphor. It was poetical. It was um, something that seemed a a fantasy, but maybe a useful fantasy. Um, While I was writing it, I was presenting evidence that this was no longer just poetry, but actually something's happening. Now it seems just part of the background and uh, almost an assumption that people have because, um, there's far more examples of ways in which this is happening.
0: Um, Give us a couple.
1: Well, um, things like DNA computers did not exist when I was writing this book. Um, that happened shortly after, and that was um, people like Alderman, the A, and RSA, the encryption software, who used DNA to parallel process, compute a solution to a mathematical problem. So they had little tiny bits of DNA working in parallel, each one of those DNA strands trying to solve one solution and in mass, in the millions, coming up with a solution that you can extract out physically in a test tube, and then use the sequence to give you the answer. That is, uh, that's just, just a prime example of understanding DNA as if it was a machine, and at the same time using um, biological principles to compute.
0: And what was the what's the point of that? What are they trying to solve? What are they trying to what problem are they trying to figure out there?
1: The problem that they the test problem that they were using for uh, this DNA computer was called the traveling salesman problem, and the problem is uh, very easy to state and very hard to solve. And, and it is if you have uh, a number of very large number of cities that you want to travel with in any country, uh, and you want to devise the shortest possible route between all those cities, it's a very difficult problem because as the number of cities increases, um, the the number of possible solutions balloons much faster, and um, it, it just becomes... Um, very computationally intensive. And yeah, there's thought.
0: no clean algorithm to solve the problem.
1: Well, there, there, there is an algorithm, but it doesn't scale, as I say. In uh-huh. other words, it works for a few, but once you get larger, you, you just run into the amount of time that it would take to compare all these possible solutions. And so the way that the DNA does it is that rather than just do one at a time, one after another, it's actually doing all the solutions or all the possibilities at once.
0: When you say the DNA does it, what do you what do you mean? I won't say exactly, roughly what do you mean?
1: Well what it does is that um each possible solution is a sequence of numbers. Um and what the DNA is doing is that it's um it's trying out a sequence of numbers. In, in other words, you, you make you make uh, many, many variations with the DNA, because that's what DNA is. Can It can easily make a lot of variations of things that are just one or two base pairs different from the next one. And you try all those, and you, you transform your puzzle, your question, into a physical... a physical... Uh, another DNA that's physical, a physical molecule. And the answer that physically fits closest into, you know, in the binding sites, if it actually, it's like a lock and key. you, You have a lock, which is your puzzle, and you're making up a gazillion keys, all of them slightly different, and the key that is closest to fitting into the lock is kept, and maybe variations on that are made slightly until you find one that fits exactly into the lock, and that DNA string is then The solution,
0: and is this of any practical application? Absolutely. Besides, I mean, of course, every traveling salesman wants their own DNA computer, but um, exactly. But more more broadly defined, what's it good for?
1: Well, what what the current computers that we have they operate in what they call a linear von Neumann process that we're all familiar with. This is a long string of instructions, one following another, and. Obviously, we can do a lot of stuff with that um, in uh, problems that have lots and lots of variables and lots and lots of possible solutions that kind of architecture doesn't doesn 't work because it doesn't scale it, it 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 becomes too slow so what this kind of DNA computing is good for is for very complicated problems of which most of the world consists of, where you have you know tens thousands, hundreds of thousands of different um, variables all at work. Um, And so the idea is that you can make um, computers that actually um, are wet, that actually have tissue, DNA molecules, that are performing the calculations. You're not going to want to use this for solving, as a calculator,
0: for instance, it's not going to be in your BlackBerry.
1: It's not going to be in BlackBerry right now, but it, oper- it operates a little closer to something what we call fuzzy logic mm-hmm. in, in places where you are, are, are wanting to have a very complicated problem and maybe you're coming to a kind of an estimate of the answer where you were happy with having an approximate answer that's likely to be very close, tend to have no answer at all.
0: And it's interesting that the brute force improvements in computing power still aren't adequate for solving all problems. I mean, the most obvious example, I guess, would be uh, encryption.
1: Encryption is is, is one where, where just the sheer magnitude of the possibilities require something like this parallel-type processing. And this is, by the way, not the only way to do parallel processing, but it's a innovative and perhaps even the cheap way of doing it. And, of course, many people believe that our brains, the, the, the gray matter in our brains, also operate in the same parallel way, that uh, that, that this is sort of the biological way. And, of course, in the, in, in the perspective of computer scientists, DNA is calculating it's computing answers all the time, and so this—and this is sort of where my book, *Out of Control*, goes—is is to say, once you understand that that there is this artificial DNA computer in the test tube that's calculating these problems, you can also, with the same pair of rose-colored glasses, imagine that the cells are actually calculating or computing their. Metabolism, that their responses, or the immune system is another great example, that the immune system, the way it works, is sort of a kind of computation. Because when you abstract out the actual functions as sort of logic uh, flows, they look exactly the same.
0: Well, as an economist, I find this very appealing because economics has been dominated for the last, oh, probably 60 years would be the right time frame. Maybe longer, but certainly in the last 60 years by what we might call the physics model, a set of very uh, precise equations modeling very simplistic aspects of the economy. And economists are increasingly dissatisfied with the results of those equations, but they don't always have anything good to replace those models with. They're very seductive, and economists like to think – we like to think we're scientists like physicists are scientists and that we can be as precise. But I and others are more, um, find the biological model more appealing, which is messier. Uh, the fuzzy logic you talked about is less precise. Uh, it's more organic. It's more holistic. And I think it's a more fruitful way to understand the way the world works.
1: Yeah. And um, I'm always careful to add that this kind of Messy logic, this kind of messy media, these, this sort of um, fuzzy version of the world, um, should not and will not replace the reductive, precise way of um, that we have been doing things and kind of you know your your linear equations. It's a, it's in, it's, a, it's in a supplement too. Um, it's it's a it's in another way of looking at the world that's very productive and um you actually in the fact you know will continue with sort of a marriage between the sun and the moon between you know the 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 the, the bright reductive way as well as the lunar holistic way and i think that um what we have not been able to do before is to tackle this other way this holistic way in any kind with any kind of rigor until computers came along right so there was always an intuition that this was a very productive way to see the world, but there was no tools to, to do anything with it. And what happened with the arrival of particularly personal computers, where anybody could kind of hack around with them, is that we suddenly realized that with their ability to synthesize and to simulate um, the complexity of the world, we could actually we actually had a tool that would allow us finally to grapple with this view of the, this holistic view of the world, and um, uh, you know, kind of weigh in the cost of it, which is imprecision and uncertainty, and but 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 you know, advance with the benefits, which was that you you, you had something, you get a some
0: insight. Yeah, as, as you say, if you want to go to the moon, so, you know, physics really good, really important. If you want to understand uh, the effects on the economy. It might be better to take a more biological approach.
1: Yeah, and I think that has less to do than most people might think, because with the fact that we're uh, biological beings. Correct. As as with as with the, the, the degree of complexity of the thing, so absolutely. So, so what we're finding out is is that uh, there can be marketplaces of mechanical agents, um, and that that. Um, When you have an exchange of resources uh, in sufficient numbers with with sufficient degrees of freedom over persistent time, even if those agents aren't conscious or even biological, you can still have the phenomenon of of an economic marketplace.
0: Or even if they're erratic and…
1: Exactly. And… They don't have to be rational.
0: Not mechanistic. They act like we do.
1: Right, and so, and so, um, what's interesting? I think one of the interesting frontiers is um, the backward path, the reverse path of bringing economics into biology, of 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 taking some of the insights that economists have about. Things and then bringing them back into ecology or the immune system, and so they they go both ways. And the fact that they flow both ways is further evidence, in my view, that they are one.
0: Yeah, I I agree. I I th- you know the the role of unintended consequences being one of the 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 importance of of things being out of control as you describe it and being aware of that is is valuable both in Biology and in economics,
1: right? And again, I'm, uh, the very title of my book, although most people, when they first saw it, were not aware of it, was that in fact I felt that things being out of control—that that was the price that was worth paying.
0: Yeah, no, that's a plus. Right,
1: exactly. Well, <laughs> I mean, feature, again, not a bug. Um, yes, and it's not so evident that that, that is, but that's that that to really gain the full power of an economic system, of a biological system, and eventually of a very complex computeral system that you actually have to surrender a certain amount of control to to maximize it.
0: Yeah. One thing I find interesting is when I talk about these issues in an economics context is how difficult it is for people to use their standard intuition and think about things that are out of control. We're so used to cause and effect. Right. And uh, Hayek talked about the challenge of language, how our language itself frustrates the ability to describe these phenomena, partly because they so o- the language so often deals in um, intention, design, as opposed to emergent, uncontrolled things. And out of control, to most people, sounds like a, a negative. For you, it was just a description. Right. it had some positives actually but but for other people it was be it would be the equivalent of in economics one of the equivalent phrases unmanaged right you want managed trade or unmanaged trade well you want managed hair or unmanaged hair Well, we want managed hair right. so why would we want unmanaged trade right yeah.
1: um, so so yeah so i think um that i think there's but i think there's been a very large cultural shift in accepting uh, a greater degree of this in our lives and our technology. And um, I mean, I think I've, you know, just seen that say, you know, growing up in the um, 60s with hippies, with the kind of a leftist slant on thing, and to see, say, how... Deeply, kind of a libertarian Hayekian view of, uh, of of economics have served, has an in infiltrated the, the the entire digital culture.
0: And what do why do you think that's true? My, my go ahead. What, I was going to give my answer. Let's hear yours first. Why do you think that cultural change has occurred? I think you're right.
1: Um. Well, a couple of things. Um. I think the demise of of a, an alternative model like yeah. communism um, made uh re- you know refocused it I think secondly um i, I, I you know I, to just speaking specifically of kind of the boomer generation of which I am who had their experiments with communal living um I, I think that's another uh aspect of this that people actually tried. I mean, not just read about it, but actually tried alternative forms and found them lacking. Um, I mean, this was very, very instrumental in a lot of people, so it had very personal uh, experience. And I think, um, thirdly, um, I I, I do believe the the computational metaphor uh, and things like the Internet, seeing how it works and the, the... And the degree to which it works um, continues to inform that view, Uh, and you know you don't have to go very much further than the miracle of Wikipedia to to have you believing all kinds of things that you would never believe before, and uh, one of those things that serve you know the power of you know the kind of out of control, decentralized marketplace to, to solve things, and you know if anything, we may be kind of coming back for, from that a little bit, saying, "Well, it can't solve everything." You know, there's still many things it can't solve, but but here's how I say it: um, we're still we're still in the period of of our culture where we are seeing. How far you can go with an out of control decentralized system in solving things. I think the wise realize that you can't go even halfway to where you want to go with just that model. But at the same time, it seems really the best way to start, and and you know to, to get as much traction done is, is, to, is to use this this approach in, in the beginning, and. We, we It keeps going further than we think it can. And so there is this, again, ex- experiential proof that you can seem to go a little further than you ever thought possible with having these systems kind of self organize even if it doesn't get you where you eventually want to go.
0: Well, email is a good example. Yeah. We'd prefer a world without spam, right. Most most of us, not all of us, but most of us. Or we'd prefer a world with the right kind of spam, right? But the world that we live in, which right now the spammers are—they're eh, doing okay. They're sort of—they're—they're they're keeping ahead of the software a little bit better than I thought they would. Well, but
1: let me, let me just ask you, uh, just because you said that. You, are you not controlling your spam?
0: No, I'm doing a pretty good. No, I, that's why I said it's sort of a half full, half empty. You know, it's not as annoying as it was. It's much less annoying than it was 6 months ago. I'm surprised it's not better because I'm a big believer in self-organizing systems uh-huh. and I I thought we'd solve this a little more effectively, but it's it's pretty good, like you say. It's got better than most people would have said, "Oh, we've got to have a, you know, a top so how, down."
1: So how many spams do you actually make it into your inbox and you have to deal with.
0: Um I probably get uh, the university uh catches a bunch now that they didn't catch before. Right. They stop a bunch at the at the uh firewall. Right. And then I'd say of the I get about I'm guessing, you know, maybe 70 emails a day now of which 25 are spam.
1: So you you're still getting 25 I think so. Dams in your box. Okay. Yeah. Well,
0: they're less there, colorful than they were a year yeah, ago. Yeah,
1: there, there there are tools that should reduce that to at least one a day. Really? Oh yeah, absolutely. I I'm, I'm surprised you I mean there are a lot of uh the filter tools that will you can run on your laptop or your
0: I'm a Mac user and I use yeah, mail. Yeah,
1: you use stamp spam and in one week um without even training it um it it will reduce it to one.
0: Okay. Well, that's good to know. Right. It's good to know this is a practical show and not just intellectually yeah. well, stimulating. My, my, my
1: only point is is that I'm finding that in fact this is sort of like an arms race, yeah. And that about one spam a day or so is kind of what we had <laughs> ten years ago, and that I I I expect that'll kind of be about the the rates um,
0: going forward. Oh well, that's that's good news. But I, going back to the main point, I yeah. I think the the evolution of the web, which is very uncontrolled and very um, emergent, mm-hmm. and the evolution of uh, open-source software are practical uh, day-to-day experiences we have, especially young people who are more involved in it, mm-hmm. uh, with the beauty of leaving things alone.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, talk a little bit about Hive Mind, a concept you put forward in the book, which is partly what we're talking about now. Um, what is that and um where is it where is it thriving, and where is it not going that you thought it might go by now
1: that's that's the last part's a good question um what have I been surprised by um well, in brief,
0: describe it first,
1: yeah, in brief, the hive mind is um, what some other people call the wisdom of the crowd right it's, uh, the idea that Nobody is as smart as everybody, that if you aggregate the um, intelligence and the smarts and the activities of a lot of people, that as a whole, it um, can do things that no individual can, and the hive comes from the beehive or the ant colony, in which you actually get a level of smartness from very dumb little things. And so it suggests that if you take a lot of little dumb things that may not be any smarter than an ant, and you connect them together with communications, that the entire colony or the entire network in the end will be smarter than an individual ant, um, which is something I call up-creation, meaning that you actually, you know, Thing you make is more precise than the parts, which at first doesn't seem logically possible. But um, because we tend to think that probabilistically, you know, you take all the errors of all the parts and you multiply them, and you should have something that's more error prone than even individuals. But actually, you get something less error prone. And that little bit of magic is, you know, is the emergent quality, and the the whole thing uh, is, is, is the hive mind where. We get good things like um, like an economy, the the invisible hand in the economy is basically kind of like the hive mind, and we have the invisible hand working in other things like Google search or um, in this case even Wikipedia, which I just mentioned, the fact that you take a lot of non- not the world's best experts, but, you know, intelligent people, and you have an encyclopedia that is, you know, by far much better than any set of individuals could, uh, a limited set of individuals could have created on their own. And this, uh, this principle of the hive mind, again, is not just about conscious beings, but even inanimate or mechanical agents when connected in an intelligent way with communication, can act and provide more value than, than isolated an individual. And nowhere is that illustration more vivid than in computers. Because for all that we talk about the computer revolution, computers really did not change the world until they were all hooked up together, until basically until the computer morphed or married the telephone, until those until they were online, computers accelerated a few jobs like word processing and Photoshop and Excel. But but they they didn't have anywhere near the cultural force and the technological force that, that, that we are now witnessing until they're all networked. And then you took a lot of dumb PCs and you have something amazing.
0: Yeah, it's a really um, incredible thing that is, is unimaginable, literally.
1: Right, and, and and more importantly, to my mind, it's just beginning that what we've seen in the last 10 years is the beginning of the beginning in terms of the power Unleashed by this hive mind of of connecting everything to everything else, and um, now that's the good side. Now there's a downside to the hive mind, which is you know the wisdom of the the, the stupidity of the mob. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: and um, there are, are, are you know there's enough. There are a lot of examples of mob. Behavior and people following the herd and um, the
0: uh, received wisdom isn't always wisdom,
1: right? <laughs> Conventional wisdom, you know, um, th- th- that's certainly part of it. And uh, and worse, things like conspiracy, conspiracy theories, and rumor and gossip are all part and parcel of this hive mind. So we have the you know we have the lowering of um, to base interests etc. So um, it's not utopia, um, and there are there are negative aspects to the hive mind that we have to deal with. Uh, spam you mentioned spam. You know, there's you know if everybody's online and then you can spam every six billion spams and that's horrible. So. Uh, there, is, there, are, there are downsides to the hive mind as well.
0: What about those missed um, opportunities, things that you think we we might have gotten to that haven't happened yet? Where are we going? You're still, you think it's untapped. I, I agree with you. Do you have any thoughts on where it might be going? Well, uh, opportunities.
1: yeah, I, I'm not sure there are a lot of opportunities that we haven't. Well, there, there there are some. I, I I actually think that we messed up in our IP uh, regime in, in copyright law and things like that. Um, intellectual property. Intellectual property. So, um, and I, you know that may not be the fault of anybody because it's just really hard to see this all coming. But it's very clear right now that we need to to revise. Some of the basic premises of uh, and our understanding of how this all works, and so that's the, the, that's a revolution in progress right now, and it's sort of touch and go because it could go either way. And I think we do actually have the possibility of um, really missing this and getting um, further laws that that will take a long time to overcome, or um, and on the other hand, of, of going in a direction where. Um, we are able to amend the philosophy and the regime to, to, to coincide more with what technology wants. And, um, you know, the copyright issues of, of making it easier, of what, what is public domain, what's uh, fair use, um, that's really where one of the issues where it comes down to, and I think a more favorable use and acknowledgement that things want to copy, and the copies don't have values themselves. As the auxiliary things you do with copies that have values, I think that's uh, th- that may be a missed opportunity, and we were slow in – we as a culture were slow in recognizing that even yeah. though that's been going on for
0: at least 20 or 30 years. Well, the problem is is that the political process isn't designed to produce the best intellectual property lo- regime. It's designed to – it's not designed to do anything. It, it, um, the solutions we're talking about emerge – like elsewhere, the people who have a vested stake in the status quo speak loudly, and right. their voice can outweigh what is good public policy. Unfortunately, yeah.
1: so so uh, another way of saying it is, is there was tremendous, huge established business interest in yep. continuing the business model, and there was not a very coordinated, um, you know, kind of citizen represent. You know, the, the, the people who wanted to change weren't really representative. However, I, I think. Again, that's that's where the hive mind can can possibly change it. I agree. So that's one area of, of perhaps a missed opportunity. In terms of what's coming next, um, I'm most interested right now in something that that has a horrible name. Um, it's called the semantic web, and um, some people call it Web 3.0, Web point 3.0, which is even a worse name. In some ways, but
0: um, hard to say. <laughs> it's it's, <laughs> it's a toss up. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's um, what it's really about is the next stage in the evolution of the web, which is a move away from uh, seeing the web as um, pages and more seeing it as uh, uh, databases, and, and that sounds. Even more boring, but what, what what that means to us, what that what that means to the individuals is that um, right now it takes a human to read the web, to surf it, to get information and value from it. The, this new thing the web is becoming will become more what they would call machine readable, meaning that. Um, our agents, our bots, our little software, our computers will be able to read it in a certain sense and extract meaning from it in the ways that it can't do right now. And the end result of that will be a much more, I mean, a vastly, vastly more powerful hive mind. It will be um, one where, um, you know, if, uh, in other words, where, if something is mentioned if if i if i if I'm looking for something the the pointers if I'm looking for a person, the pointers to that person from around the web will find their way to the node that I'm looking for because the web itself will sort of be more aware of what things are You could kind of think of the web right now as being very vast and flat in the sense that all information is of equal height and that the web itself is sort of not really aware of itself, of what it knows. And what we're talking about is adding additional structure to the information on the web in in such a way that um, the various links that have been made start to have tags. And so I, I talk about these two inventions, the link and the tag, as being these central inventions that we'll look back on in 100 years and say just like the light bulb and the phonograph these other two inventions the link and the tag will, will will surface as being these remarkable things so we've linked everything on the web and now we're tagging it assigning that values and meaning and categories so that it in a certain sense without getting too cosmic about it. In a certain sense, the web is more intelligent. It's capable of... It's easier to extract out something meaningful from it in the sense of asking it a question about, you know, a natural language question like, you know, um, what is the capital of, of Nigeria? And it will be able to... It will know what you mean by capital because all the other capitals that's ever mentioned on the web will be... Will be tagged as capitals. And so getting an answer back that's meaningful will be much better. And that's just one elementary example, but all the other sophisticated things that we want to do with a world knowledge a brain or a library of all the knowledge in the world we will be able to do. And not just, of course, it's us, but our agents as well.
0: Yeah, it's a kind of. It's a lot more exhilarating than the Semantic Web. I agree. It's, um, it's For marketing yes. purposes, we need a better name for it.
1: <laughs> yes, it's we do. Remarkable. And if you have any suggestions, I, I welcome them. Or if your readers or listeners have suggestions, uh, I welcome them as well.
0: Um, but it is an exhilarating idea, this ex- incredible profusion of information that we've done a pretty good job at, at navigation. as a start, but it's, we've clearly only scratched the surface.
1: Yeah, and... That, and Navigation is one aspect of it, of, of us being able to navigate through it. But I think, again, most of the communication that will happen in the next 25, 30 years and beyond is going to be not between humans and the web or between human and human, but between our agents and machines behind them and other machines. And so um, we, in fact, want a lot of this stuff to be happening in the background, um, without us having to think about it. We we, we we want to be kind of in a certain sense served and supported by this. And um, in some sense, we don't even want to have to navigate it. I mean, really. I mean, I don't want to have to negav- navigate the web. I just want to be able to ask a question or have something and and ask it and have it done. So um, I I think the sh- there there will be a shift from navigation to maybe something called meaning or um, or, or, or something else. And
0: Experiencing, yeah. It's not clear what... We don't have or, a good word for it. You know. Exactly. The difference between uh, maybe using a map to find a place versus a three-dimensional video versus actually visiting the... I mean, there's a whole different set of layers there. Yeah, there is there's,
1: yeah, there's the, your own experience of it. There's having a... Uh, Buddy or a guide, uh, so so yeah. Maps are only one one way to 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 experience a
0: place. Um, Before we leave, out of control, which we've been talking about, uh, it played a role in the movie The Matrix. Mm-hmm. Tell us what happened and how that came about.
1: All that happened happened without my knowledge. I was only informed of this later on, and what I was told uh And what appeared in the uh, DVd portion the making of the matrix portion of the dVD was that um uh, the brothers washoff brothers who made the film were very influenced by reading out of control and two other books apparently um, and uh they felt so strongly about the um, the perspective that this book had, that they required all the actors on the film to read that book and the two others. One was uh, uh, Baudrillard's uh, Simulations, um, which is a great book. And, um, you know, you can kind of see a little bit of that influence in, I think, the third movie where they have... uh, Swarms of things creating a uh, super organism being, kind of a hive mind at work. And there's a little bit of, um, of other threads in the movies with the idea of the architect and um, simulated reality, what Baudrillard called hyper reality, where the simulation is so complex so rich that it has its own level of reality even though it's a fake and um, uh, there may be other examples but I never looked very hard nor to have I heard which specifically they were um,
0: I don't I don't mean to disillusion you but as, as you surely know not every student reads the required reading I, I, have you do you know if any of the actors did their homework? Did they? Did any of them actually read the book? I
1: it's ha- nice enough
0: that the director did. That's fine, but I'm curious.
1: Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> I have the feeling from what was said in the thing that at least uh, Kino uh, Reeves, uh, what's his name, uh, yeah. uh, read it. But I don't know if anyone else, because I, I don't travel in those circles. Um, uh, so, right. um, yeah, and... Out of control for those who haven't read it is 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 not an easy read. it's hugely long.
0: It's a fat book, but it's it's deeply rewarding
1: It's rewarding, <laughs> but nonetheless it's a huge commitment and so uh most people read the first couple of chapters and then their gaskets are blown, and they <laughs> um don't ever return but um so uh like a lot of books but but you know you might be able to get something out of it just by the first couple of chapters I think
0: that's true. Uh, but I recommend I recommend more than that. Um, speaking of movies, you're in the credits of of Steven Spielberg's movie yeah. a Minority Report. Right. What was your contribution there?
1: That was a lot more fun because we actually had some direct input, and um, I was with the a, a, a GBN a scenario building group. Um, we were invited down to Shutter's Hotel by Spielberg, and we spent a day and a half in a room there with some of their script writers with uh, an unfinished script which we had not read. We had only read the fragment of a story that Philip K. Dick had read. It was more of a sketch than anything. Um, And our assignment was to uh, give as much detail as we could to a scenario of the year. I think it was 2050. And um, Spielberg Spielberg wanted very um, specific things of like, you know, what did what did the rooms look like? What did they do during the day? What, did, what were the cars? Uh, hmm. Did they have beds? You know, he was asking, you know. Uh, and so our job was to kind of um, fantasize and, and you know, do science fiction world building. And um, there were a couple of Things that we suggested that did make it into the movie. A couple, two of my ideas were, um, I had a friend who has a, who started a, a, biotech company, um, producing the inhalable form of insulin in these little, um, canisters. And I thought how, how likely these things were to be abused. And so the, um, the inhaler, the inhaler drug things that, um, the hero is afflicted with, his addiction to those sort of came out of that, this idea that you'd have these street inhalers. And then um, the scene where Tom Cruise is doing the um, stand-up uh, virtual reality interface uh, to the computer, this kind of this right. gestural thing, that was um, something i have been talking about for a long time, that we would be thinking on our feet so because when we are on our feet, we have different thoughts than when we're, when we're sitting down, and that we want to use our whole body um, to interact with uh, things. And so that kind of came out of out of that.
0: It's a wonderful movie, one of my yeah. uh, one of my favorites. And I, it would be an incredible thrill to me to contribute an, an idea or two. That must have been fun.
1: Yeah, of course we had. No idea what they were going to use, and one of the guys on on uh, in the group was Joel Garreau. And after this day and a half of, I mean, there were a lot of great, great ideas. He said, "Well, I sure hope they don't screw up our movie." <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: well. <laughs> I. While we're talking about um, the future, I want to. I want to turn to a a brief short essay you wrote for EDGE.org. They like to ask wise people big questions. And the last question they asked a bunch of folks was, what are you optimistic about? And you answered that you were optimistic about the only thing you can be optimistic about, which is the future. And you said the following, and it's a lengthy quote, but um, it's so profound I thought I'd I'd read the whole thing. And you can... uh, You can either nod or say something about it if you want to add to it. You wrote the following. Right now, if we want to live in tomorrow, that place which is just a little better than today, the best we can do is to live in the most forward-looking city on earth. Cities are where the future happens. It is where there are increased choices and possibilities. Every day, one million people move from the countryside into cities. This journey is less a trip in space as in time. These migrants are really moving hundreds of years forward in time, relocating from medieval villages into 21st century sprawling urban areas. The ills of these slums are very visible and don't stop the arrivals. They are coming, as we all do, for the slightly increased number of freedoms and options they didn't have in their past. This is the very same reason we are living where and the way we do, to have 1% more choices. Uh, That's that's the end of the first part of the quote, which which I like a lot, but then you say something even deeper. Moving back into the past has never been easier. Citizens in developing countries can merely walk back to their villages where they can live with age-old traditions and limited choices. If they're eager enough, they can live without modern technology at all. Citizens in the developed world can buy a plane ticket and in less than one day can be settled in a hamlet in Nepal or Mali. If you care to relinquish the options of the present and adopt the limited choices of the past, you can live there the rest of your life. Indeed, you can choose your time period. If you believe the peak of existence was reached in Neolithic times, you can camp out in a clearing in the Amazon. If you suspect the Golden Age was in the 1890s, you can find a farm among the Amish. We have the incredible opportunity to head into the past, but it is amazing how few people really want to live there. And what I wanted to ask you about that quote is that we romanticize the past. We talk about the past with such romance And we talk about the future with such fearfulness, and yet I think the insight that you have in there is that we talk that way, but we don't act that way.
1: Yeah, I say all that because I, instead of going to college, I spent my formative years after high school in Asia living in the 15th century, living in... um, villages that not only lacked electricity but often lacked metal and um, I learned a huge lot from from that and one was that um, it was not impossible to be happy and uh, to a certain extent uh, spiritually content with very little um, and so and so the, the, the constant drive in uh, migration from those places where I was to places that we would avoid in other words from a kind of a tranquil just uh, splattered beautiful village into the slums of Mumbai or Calcutta I, you're constantly confronted with the question of why are they doing that? And um, my this, this, my experience of making that journey many times was that when we went into the cities, what they were getting was choices. And um, I think that that gain, that trade-off, is actually what technology brings us, not just cities. It's what technology gets, because I agree with a lot of the critics of technology that that often a new invention will bring more problems than solutions. And if that's really true, then you have to wonder, well, why, why should we accept and tolerate innovation and and, um, new technology if it is bringing us more problems than solutions? And I think the answer comes down to the fact that um, most problems are just kind of opportunities that we haven't realized yet, and secondly, that in those problems, as well as the benefits, are choices, and that um, in the end there's probably a, you know, 49% bad stuff, maybe 51% good stuff, and and, a very small delta in good, but the choices are really what drive us to um, the places and why we kind of want to live in the future. Uh, So a lot of it's really driven out of my own, personal journey and living in places that didn't have very many choices.
0: Yeah, that's a deep economic insight. Um, it's easy for social critics to say, you know, it's an error because there are bad things. But, the possi- the alternative view is that there are bad things but there are many good things. And yeah, it's not, easy to ignore. Right.
1: Them. Not only are there bad things, but, well, I mean, it's actually, I'm not even sure that there are bad things. I The way I say it is that they're not really kind of like um Bad technology. There's just bad parents. Yep. There's. I I think actually, what we're in charge of doing is trying to find a a good home for every technology. That um, that there's there's no technology that is completely bad. That there's sort of you know like Darth Vader. You know we we know there's some good in it, and it's trying to steer that technology to the right place where its genius can can blossom and you know nuclear energy is sort of one of these examples of something that you know we're kind of
0: still moving
1: around hunting for its exact niche where its negatives are are, you know diminished and its, its virtues are emphasized and we can um, you know, to me, there's no doubt that 200 years in the future, 300 years, they'll be perfectly good, lovable nuclear technology because they'll figure it out exactly how to do it right. And we're just sort of right now still trying it out on different problems, looking for the right home for it.
0: You know, you picked a dramatic example. My my less dramatic example is television. So in our house, we don't have cable because um, I don't think we can handle it. So it's, there might be a way to get cable and handle it, but we've just gone cold turkey on the cable thing because we'd end up watching too much sports and the, the minds of our children would rot and we'd talk to each other less and my wife would probably um, leave the house a lot. So we all have our ways of coping uh, with problems like that. and um,
1: Yeah, I agree. In fact, we don't have – Cable or network TV, and they haven't had our kids' group without it, but of course we have uh, internet and DVDs. Um, and so, TV is, you know, TV on demand, or actually, what I'm saying these days, uh, TV on DVD is a tremendously, I mean, I think we're actually in the renaissance of TV programming with the long form of uh, some of these shows, you know, basically 20 hour movies, you know, uh, Sopranos or uh-huh. Lost or. Others, um, very deeply rich um, storylines, far more complex than anything that's been written till now, um, and it was just looking for the right form.
0: Yeah, that's and, I agree. Yeah. Uh, changing gears. In um, in 1998, you wrote New Rules for the New Economy, mm-hmm. which was a long, long time ago. 1998 to talk about the web. And there are a lot of insights in there that are still true, and the fundamental principles are still true. I'm curious which of your predictions and, and strategic comments you're maybe most proudest of or least proudest of in that book. Any thoughts on that?
1: Well, actually, you, you, uh, it would be interesting to hear from you, but from my perspective, I don't think I would change anything I said or any of the principles. I might substitute do a global search and replace and substitute the word networked economy with new economy, which was actually how it was first written. We changed it midway. Um, but I, I think um, they're all still valid, not just mostly. And um, some of the examples are dated, but I just can't be faulted for that because things have changed so fast.
0: No, I thought there were a lot of – I thought it was perfectly timely. As you point out, the examples are dated, but I think more important than that are the the examples you didn't know because they hadn't happened yet, but that you basically anticipated. Um, There are a lot of paragraphs in that book uh, that reminded me of of the coming of Google, but Google wasn't around yet, and so you couldn't talk about it, but now you would. Right.
1: Yeah. So, in fact, I was just thinking the other day that – I should I should issue a ten-year expanded version that would have more current examples because I still think it's useful and maybe didn't get enough exposure when it first came out.
0: What Um, book does? (laughs) Is what? (laughs) What book does?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. As as an author, I can totally relate. Matter of fact, I think Out of Control is selling better now than it was when it was first issued. Uh, It would. I, when it was first issued in 94 the out of control was reviewed only in two places. Wow. It was completely um ignored. Um, and it has far more attention now uh, 10 years down the road. So I mean auto, uh, new rules may may have the same the same fate.
0: Well, here here at Econ Talk we uh, we're looking for the timeless. Uh, it is a strange thing. You know, I'm ha- I love that book. I'm happy to talk about it. We we could we could spend you know, hours talking about just that book. And yet in the in the modern uh sort of uh, what we, we might call the mainstream media, regular quote, regular radio or newspapers, no one t- writes about things that are more than six months old or year old. If you if you start to say, you know, you said two places reviewed it, you could go back to the thousand places that didn't and say, Your readers missed this. You didn't give them a chance to explore it. Why don't you explore it? They'd say, Well, it was written in nineteen ninety four. We can't yeah. write about that.
1: Yeah, no, it's true. There's no sense of uh The long view, what we call the long view and uh, the past. Um, But that may be a segue to the fact that um, this other foundation that I'm involved with is trying to inculcate and to foster a sense of the long view, of the long now, we call it, which is to expand our sense of where we are from just the last five minutes to the next five minutes, from there to a sense of maybe the last thousand years to the next thousand years. Um, we're not trying to make plans or thousand-year plans. We're just trying to encourage people to think in terms of generations, to think in terms of the scale of civilization over hundreds of years, to be active in trying to increase options over time rather than decrease them. And... Um, one of the things you notice is that often people don't have a sense of the path and every futurist that i've met any futurist worth their salt is a good historian
0: yeah now that'd be a good thing uh, i'd i'd settle for 20 years instead of um a millennium but um our our political system i think more so than our economic system but our political system in particular is very um, has a very short attention span i think that's not a good thing and it Handicaps us in solving problems that, that a little bit of patience and perspective would, would be much better at.
1: Yeah, and, and it's somewhat because of that, of uh, people not really being very accountable over the long term, that we actually, uh, Stuart, Brandon, and I started something called Long Bets, which was a website to encourage people to be responsible and accountable for their predictions. And the people that we're thinking of are people like ourselves, myself, and others who make predictions, who make forecasts, which can often have effect on people, and try and have people stand up for those and to assign a little bit of a penalty for being wrong. Great idea. Right now there isn't. So so so-and-so can say something, I'm certain this will happen, and uh, 10 years later or 5 years later or 2 years later, uh, it doesn't happen and there's no there's no uh there's no hurt for for saying those kinds of things, and so we're trying to say well let's um, let's be accountable for predictions and of course for actions uh, so the idea of even having kind of a accountability roster of past uh actions where you know they they come back to you, and I think some of the effort now with blogging and the web of trying to hold people in public office much more accountable for the things they say as they go along is, is all in, in the correct direction.
0: Well, reputation obviously plays a role in in punishing bad predictions to some extent, but it's sometimes surprising how little reputations suffer for bad predictions. It, as an economist, my favorite is all the people who said Japan was going to destroy us and we were going to lose all our good yeah, jobs, and I remember that just disappeared. And all the people who wrote those things, they did—they took a hit. I'm not going to name names, but a lot of them have less prestige around their their names yeah. than they did in the heyday of those predictions, which all turned out to be ghastly and, and wrong. Right. And right. the people today who are worried about China, I, I think will take an equal hit, uh, but time will tell. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. But the, the web introduces, because of the search function, mm-hmm. the web does introduce that reputational accountability in a way that is that was that was very different um, in, in the world even even ten years ago, when you could say something really dumb, uh, particularly on the radio or TV, which you can still do a little bit. But now, if you say something dumb on the web, it will it will haunt you, which I think is a good thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, and
0: and you say something smart on the web. It, uh, what's the opposite of haunt you I don't know it enhance you or
1: yeah <laughs> uh, i i i i think um and of course we're just at the beginning of devising tools that will allow you to um, to have, to have the reputation would be more portable yep I mean they really your reputation should converge in a certain sense around your persona um, and um I think that would be one of the things that this other semantic web, whatever it was that we we're calling it, will also um, foster is a, a more unified, um, accountable reputation.
0: Well, in the old days, if you really messed up, you could you could leave town and you could start over. But, right. of course, the new town always was wary of newcomers precisely for the reason that they were likely to be people who needed to start over. Right. Uh, but um, the web is going to make it harder to start over, which has its pluses and minuses. Uh, I, we're almost out of time. I, I'd like to read one more quote from you that I really that I really loved, um, and and see what your thoughts on it are on it today. In, in January of 2002, you wrote an essay for the Wall Street Journal at a time when the web was in. Um, in some disrepute. There had been an amazing amount of hype about how the web was going to change our lives. And then the dot-com uh, magic seemed to disappear. A lot of uh, billionaires became millionaires. A lot of millionaires became penniless. A lot of people making uh, six-figure salaries became unemployed. And it was uh, a, a gloomy time with lots of pessimism. And you wrote, I think, something very profound. and. You were talking about how the commercial part of the web would, would recover but that we were ignoring the non-commercial part and the fact that people put stuff up on the web not just to make money, which is fine, but also just for the for the fun of it, for the love of it, for the thrill of it, for the sharing of it. And here, here's the quote. It said you wrote, will we ever appreciate this web woven out of love and greed for the fabulous miracle it is? Perhaps as more of the world wins access to it and more of our books and movies and history are added, we will come to see it as a dream come true, a collective dream created by people like you and me sharing what they love. Who would have guessed that at the end of a harrowing harrowing year, the heart of this gift and miracle already beats? And I I just – I thought that was a profound uh, thought. And if anything, the sharing part that you were writing about then, which was again an eternity – five years ago has gotten better.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would put it sort of even stronger now, and I think I did a little bit in the uh, We Are the Web piece for Wired, and that is is that um, um, if I was to sort of stand up 10 years ago, if I was to stand up and list all the things that I believed would come in ten years. Um, it's a very, very, very long list—from you know, street maps or satellite maps, Google Earth uh, in 3D, um, you know, real-time stock quotes to uh, weather radar, uh, uh, you know, the encyclopedias. I mean, it's just everything that that we would have this everything. On our desktop, and that most of it would be for free, I would be laughed off the stage.
0: Right, was, as a, as a it fool. It was
1: just insane. It was just wild-eyed optimism. And the main argument against it, uh, you know, as an economist, you would appreciate this, is that there was simply not enough money.
0: Yeah, right. To who would pay for it all?
1: Yeah, to, to build it, and particularly to do it for free. And so, um, in a certain sense. We don't really still have a very good explanation. Uh, I think an economic explanation of uh, how this happened. A lot of people say, well, you know, there were billions of dollars lost and in, invested in, it. and that's true. Uh, I mean, there was there was a lot of money invested into it, but you know, money made in some way at the same time. Um, and so, I, I do think it, it's sort of an impossible thing. In the same way, you know, again coming back to Wikipedia um that you know if i was to tell you and describe how that would work um and i you know you you would just say that doesn't work that's impossible humans don't operate that way and yet here it is and so um what those things have sort of encouraged us is to actually to believe the impossible a lot easier and um one of those impossible things is that um people do things for love and that people do things not just out of greed um and maybe even do they do things irrationally sometimes too and so that's not been part of the kind of the economic formula and as such, we need to kind of incorporate those miracle agents into our thinking in the next ten years at least
0: yeah, it's kind of the I think of it as the straw man economic formula, the view that. People are only motivated by money and good economists understand that people are motivated by all kinds of things, love and money and pride and humanness and altruism and eagerness to save the world and make the world a better place and connect with people. And The two most interesting things we've talked about to me today are the – your insight about choices and how much we are willing to sacrifice to get more choice, which is I think a fundamentally human thing that is at the heart of economics. And the second thing is our desire to connect with others which is a fundamentally human thing and people decry our current world of technology because it's isolating you know we sit at our little desks with our our little computers all by ourselves bowling alone and yet it's a misreading of what's really going on i mean the connections that we make with with strangers now via the web via the things the blogs we share the music we share the podcasts we share are just they're extraordinary, and they deli- they're, they're deliriously delightful, and right. what is more important about the human experience than that? Right Just, yep.
1: uh, you said it well.
0: My guest today has been Kevin Kelly, author, futurist, optimist. Kevin, thanks for joining us.
1: Great, my pleasure.